Good morning. Glad to see y'all here. I, this is a big game day today, and I know y'all are excited as I am. Um, I had to ask this morning who's playing, and uh, I guess it's the Horns versus the Revolutionary War soldiers, I think. The only way I know how to identify them is what's on their helmet, so I don't even know really who they are, but I was in a, a waiting room this week. Uh, waiting on something, and uh, a guy commented in my direction. There was a, a lady sitting there also. He turned to me. He said, man, can you believe that call? I guess talking about a recent game, talking about a recent game that, like a lot of you probably know exactly what he's talking about. And I said, I know, man, that's crazy. <laughs> and then the gal, it's actually Matt Coger's wife, she started commenting back and forth and looking at me and interacting, and I was like, man, I know. Isn't that something? That's really something else. <laughs> I don't know why I'm comfortable outing myself in here, but not in there. I wasn't. I wasn't prepared for the saying, I really have no idea what you're talking about. But I'm glad y'all are here today. Let's start, or let's continue our time in worship with prayer. God, we are so thankful for this time. We're thankful for a place that's quiet, that's safe, a place where we can sort of tune out the world. Lord, I pray that you would... Use this time that you would help us sort of set our uh, life issues aside for a few moments and just sit at your feet. Lord, I'm thankful that we're going to a book that's living and sharp, uh, that hones and shapes and equips. Lord, I'm thankful that we're not talking about something that's dead. We're not talking about opinions. We're not talking about ideas. We're talking about truths that are timeless and a story that's pretty scandalous in an amazing love that you've had for us and in the personal work of Jesus, Lord. I pray this morning that we would enjoy him well. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for another church in our community and pray for, uh, praying for Ridgecrest Baptist Church. Um, pray for Matt Beasley as he's traveling these next couple of weeks and visiting missionaries abroad. Lord, I pray that you would watch over him. I pray that you would give him a, a view to your work in the far corners. Lord, I pray that Ridgecrest would flourish in this season even while Matt's away and as they are displaced. Lord, I pray that you would give them great problems of growth and space and as they are about the wonderful work of discipling. Lord, we entrust them to you. Thankful to lift them up this morning and thankful that we can entrust these few minutes that we have together to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. You can turn to Exodus chapter 17. As you're turning there, I'll give you kind of a, a plan for the morning where I actually, I'm actually preaching from home base this morning is in Matthew chapter 4, and I just kind of explain what we're doing with a little illustration. Uh, I, would, I would argue that mariachis has to be the best Mexican food in Greenville. And I would argue that pretty passionately because, I, I mean, I haven't eaten at every Mexican food place, but mariachis is pretty amazing. Um, Christy and I, when we go there, we get this, uh, this meal. It's called mocajete. Did I say that right? Mocajete. You got to say it right because there's something about just even saying it right that makes you really want to enjoy it. It comes out in this big ceramic pot uh, or stone. I don't know what it is, hewn from lava or something. And it's got the most amazing dish inside. It even has cactus in it. Like, who would think to eat cactus? But it's good. I mean, it's really that good. Uh, I want you to imagine what it would be like if you went to mariachis, and you may have to envision somewhere else if you don't agree with me that mariachis is the best. 
that if you go in there and you just eat chips and salsa and then leave. The chips and salsa are pretty good. If you're like me, you have a problem with chips and salsa. By the time you get to your meal, you're like, just take, give me a take home. Like, I just got to take it home because I'm stuffed. But it's almost criminal to have something so good as mocajete that you ruin by chips and salsa. Just imagine what it would be like if you went to a Mexican food place and just ate chips and salsa. And you got up and left. Okay, I want you to just kind of think about that idea and realize what it would be like for you to come to church every Sunday, even every Sunday, and not read your Bible to get acquainted with the stories in the Old Testament. It would be like eating chips and salsa. Okay, is it nourishment? Absolutely. Is it kind of good? Yeah, it's really pretty good. But you're missing out on really the good, good, best part of the meal if you don't acquaint yourself with the stories in the Old Testament that provide the context for the new. Last week, we had the same plan that we're following this week. We're going to the Old Testament to, do, to unpack a passage there so that we can make sense of something in the New Testament. We want more than chips and salsa. We want the mocajete. So we're turning to Exodus chapter 17, 1,500 years before Matthew wrote his gospel to Matthew chapter, or, uh, Exodus chapter 17. Let me share also a passage. I'm going to use some terminology this morning that I want to show is not... Uh, um, something I made up, but it's something actually comes from God's word. Uh, stay in Exodus chapter 17, but I'm going to introduce you to a phrase. When, whenever um, Moses was given instructions to lead God's people out of Egypt, he was given specific instructions of what to say to Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter 4, he says, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. Israel, the people, is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Now, I'm going to use that language for the rest of the morning of sonship. We're going to really consider a story of two sons. Okay, Israel as a son and then a new and better son in Matthew chapter 4. So let's... Jump into Exodus chapter 17. These guys, the congregation, this son called Israel, is barely dry. They've just toweled off from crossing the Red Sea. Now, I'm using that figuratively because they didn't even get wet, first of all, and this is about a month and a half later. But it's very recent, okay? And here we are in chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, the very key phrase this morning, is the Lord among us or 
not. Okay, let's just kind of draw a few things out of this passage. Not a heavy unpacking here. Um, these guys are legitimately thirsty. Okay? Nothing wrong with being thirsty. I'm actually seriously thirsty as I'm thinking about this. Nothing in the world wrong with being thirsty. We consider last week, there's nothing wrong with being hungry. Thirst is a God-given thing, a mechanism that keeps us from dying from dehydration. These guys are thirsty. The issue was not that they were thirsty, it's how they were thirsty. Some of the words that come out of this passage, they quarreled with Moses. You see how that unfolds. They demanded what they needed from Moses. They demanded water. And in many ways, the way they went about it, they're saying, is the Lord among us or not? Why in the world are we thirsty? And they grumbled against Moses and effectively expected the worst of Moses and expected the worst of God. He's just led us out here to kill us. Is the Lord among us or not? They reserved their trust in him until he demonstrated his power. Now, I want you to hear that phrase and kind of consider the irony. It's a month and a half after they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, where the water is piled up in heaps on each side, like not even muddy. They dry ground. It's a month and a half after they've watched the Red Sea fold in on Pharaoh's army. It's two months, three months maybe, after they watched the plagues, hail, darkness, uh, locusts, frogs, the Passover, the death of every firstborn son in every Egyptian home. And they're sitting here saying, man, God, are you among us or what? Reserving their trust in him until he demonstrates his power. He's dropped food from the sky and he sort of um, herded in quail by the mouthful so that they could eat. Man, it's a crazy thought that they are reserving their trust in him until he demonstrates his power. So a shockingly gracious, gracious God, what he does? A shockingly great, gracious God gave Moses instruction to strike a rock and water poured forth in the sight of the elders. Like last week, there was some commentary. Okay, Commentary fast forwards about 40 years or so to the end of the wilderness wanderings where Moses is writing from Nebo. He's writing the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, he says about this event, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. That's the interpretation of what happened over here in Exodus chapter 17. God referred to this occasion, and Moses is the mouthpiece of this, as God's son is... I'd like to think that this was an isolated incident where they tested God, where it wasn't a practice. But we looked at a few of those snapshots last week. Let me just share a passage with you from Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 20. It says, The Lord God said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who've seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness... And yet have put me to the test, not once, but ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. It wasn't just a one-off where they tested the Lord. They tested the Lord by practice, effectively, over and over again, saying, Is the Lord among us or what? 
a couple of the most graphic ones that I can think of are just a couple of chapters in front of that Numbers 14 passage that I read. In Numbers chapter 11, here's a couple of them. Listen, the people of Israel complained in the hearing of the, of the Lord about the misfortunes. The Son of God, the Son called Israel, complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again, saying, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Man, these guys over and over again are saying, is the Lord among us or what? Turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. You know, the songs uh, written about a people are written by a people in different generations say a lot about what's going on among them and what's going on in them. And the Psalms are little snapshots of the story of this people. And this Psalm number 78 is actually a teaching Psalm. It says at the beginning of it, it's a maskil of Asaph. A maskil is a teaching Psalm. And I want you to imagine, okay, we're, we're trying to get at Mokahete. Okay, if we're stuck on chips and salsa, we're going to check out of this little development, that I've, this place where I've been going this last couple of minutes and where I'm going right here. But if you really want some Mokahete, then listen in with me a few passages from Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. It's a teaching psalm. Okay, just imagine... Hebrew parents wanting to teach their children the story of Israel. Okay, this, is a, this might be a psalm that they're going to have them turn to. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old. Dark sayings. Why would I want to build dark sayings into my kids? Listen to the, the dark sayings that he's going to build into the Hebrew children. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children because we want to eat mokahete. We want our children to know these stories so they can get the point. We will tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. Look down at verse 12. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. This is a song about the passage that we've been considering this morning. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Is God among us or what? He struck the rocks so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread 
or provide meat for his people? Is God among us or what? Therefore, this is a little snapshot into the nature of the people, the story of this Hebrew people, but it's also a snapshot in the nature of our God, our God, that we share with these ancient folk. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above them and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. This is the kind of father that we have. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out of the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. In verse 32, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe, saying over and over again, is God among us or what? Man, this first son that we've considered this morning in this first story, this guy has a terrible track record. I mean, these, the, the snapshots, I've just given you a few snapshots. It is consistent throughout our Old Testament. This is the story of Israel, grumbling, quarreling, doubting, forgetful of God's many works, faithless, inconsistent, and saying over and over again, is the Lord among us or what? Man, I think we need to look at a better son. Amen? Is anybody like tired of looking at this son? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. Let's go there. Let's enjoy a new and better son. But let me encourage you as you turn there, there might be the temptation to kind of feel like we've been talking about somebody else. Talking about those crazy Israelites. Man, those guys are so dumb. They're really dumb, right? I mean, he's all these mighty works, and they're walking out. Just, I mean, just dried off from the Red Sea, and they're saying, guys, God among us or what? Man, they're so dumb. Let me just ask you to consider the question. Have you ever forgotten the works of God and complained, is God among us or what? Where is God in this circumstance that we're in? Where is God in this mess that we're in while we're wearing the blessings that he's just bathed us in? Man, let's personalize this. Let's don't let this just be about someone else. Because not only did Israel need a new or better son, we need a new and better son. All right, let's enjoy him together beginning in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to, just for context's sake, read the first four verses, but we're going to be spending our time in verses 5 through 7. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I'm going to say that again. If you are the Son of God. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then sort of picking up here is where we're going to focus in verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. 
and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. All right, I want to spend just a few minutes. Here's the kind of the plan for the rest of the morning. We're going to spend just a few minutes and sort of grab some of the observations from this passage. And they're, they're simple, they're very visual. We're sort of gathered those observations up, and then I have three takeaways for you. Okay, so this is going to be a very simple morning. So let's look at some of these observations. First of all, this first observation is really obscure. It's not something that you would be able to see in your immediate translation that you have in front of you, unless you're sitting there with a Greek translation. Okay, let me, let me just kind of help you with this thought. Let me just, let me say, just imagine the scenario. A kid comes running in the house and he tells you about something that happened at school today. Okay, he tells you all past tense verbs. But then when it gets really, to, like the really exciting part of the story where he starts to use present tense verbs. It's like he's caught up in the, the excitement of it. Okay, that's what's happening here in this particular temptation. Okay, the words that are actually translated here, took and said, that are translated as past tense in our translations, are actually present tense verbs. Up to this point, they've all been past tense, aorist tense in Greek, past tense verbs. But listen, let me reread the passage for you so you can climb into the excitement of what Matthew's getting at. Then the devil takes him to the holy city and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. The excitement of this passage is sort of lost in translation. The sense here that Matthew is sort of kind of freaking out at the reality that God the son let Satan take him somewhere. I mean, just, just let that hit you for a moment. Let you just, I mean, just kind of consider for a moment that God the Son let Satan take him somewhere. Now, we don't know that this was actual physical transportation. It was probably visionary because the third temptation involved transportation, a transport to the highest mountain where he could see all the kingdoms of the earth. That mountain doesn't exist, even Everest. You can't see all the kingdoms of the earth. It seems like it's visionary in a sense, but it's very real vision in the sense it's a very real temptation. And just consider for a moment that God the Son let Satan take him somewhere. That word take, that same verb, is used of Joseph taking the Christ child and his mother on their journeys. Man, if that, that, that may not kind of strike you. It's funny that a human being is going to pick up God the Son, the one in whom all things are, hold, are held together, and going to take him to Egypt to avoid the murder of the Herod's sword. Okay, but just consider now that Satan taking Christ somewhere should really leave you shocked. It apparently caught Matthew off guard. It's shocking that one with such power would empty himself and subject himself to the temptations and the transport of such a vile creature. Man, over the years in pastoring, I've, I've spent a lot of time with folks that really struggle with feeling like God loves them. Some of that might be because you have a parent that wasn't very good at loving you. I don't know why. It may, maybe just a personality trait. It might be uh, something that's happened to you that left you in a place where you feel like, I, I just struggle with the notion of God loving me. Just consider for a moment that God the Son, let Satan take him somewhere for you. God the Son, let Satan take him somewhere so that he could succeed where you failed. Man, that's a profound love. A profound love for his father and a profound love for you. 
he let Satan take him somewhere. It reminds me of somewhere else that he let someone else place him on a wooden cross at the end of this book. Because we add to the word, we add to the verb here that he took him somewhere, that he set him somewhere, that he placed him somewhere, that he stood him somewhere. As the, some translations say, stood him up like he's a little puppet. Like propped him up somewhere. That the King of kings and Lord of lords would empty himself and submit to such humiliation for our sake is scandalous. He's taken and he's set on the pinnacle of the temple. Now the pinnacle of the temple is not a steeple. Okay, Churches have steeples. The temple didn't have a steeple. It had probably a portico or some sort of balcony. It was apparently known by these folks because they used a definite article, article there, the pinnacle of the temple. It's been lost in a couple thousand years since then. We don't know specifically what the place is. We don't have to know specifically what the place is. All we need to know is it's pretty high. It's high enough that if he left off of it, he would need some sort of rescue to avoid certain death. There's actually some obscure context here that, that you wouldn't know about that's actually sort of maybe shed some light on the nature of this particular temptation. There was some Jewish midrash, is the word for Jewish commentary, some ancient Jewish commentary that suggested that the Messiah, improving himself, would leap from the pinnacle of the temple and survive. It's kind of, I mean, it kind of pieces together why maybe this particular temptation is here in front of us, if that, if that was the mindset. The temptation, the nature of the temptation, though, first of all, he says, if you're the son of God, essentially, leap. Now, I don't know about you, that's not a temptation for me. To be on a high place and to have a temptation to leap. Now, I have to admit, sometimes I have those intrusive thoughts. Some of you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, those weird intrusive thoughts, like you're, on a, you're in a high place, and you go, man, what would it be like if I kind of threw a leg over? It's not, it's not suicidal stuff, it's just like something in you kind of scares you, like, oh, honey, hold me, let me step away from this wall. A weird intrusive thought. I don't think that's what's going on here, because I don't think there's really temptation where Jesus is going, oh, man, I really want to leap. I mean, unless you're a cat, or like practicing parkour or something. You're probably not a real temptation to leap from some sort of high place. I think the temptation is illuminated in the passage that Satan referenced. The passage that he referenced is in Psalm 91. And first of all, let's just consider the fact that Satan has stepped up his game from the first temptation, hadn't he? Because the first temptation is, hey, turn those stones to bread. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be satisfied with the words that come from my father. He's like, okay. No scripture used. Here he's using, he's tempting Christ with scripture. And he's referencing specifically Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. The passage there in Psalm 91 reads, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. That's the only part that Satan leaves out. And that's not deceptive. The gist of the passage is still there. He's not misquoting the passage deceptively. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now the subject of Psalm 91 is revealed in the first verse of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, who trusts the Lord, will find this sort of protection. And I can't imagine anyone who would dwell more closely in the shelter of the Most High than the Son of God. Okay, so the subject would apply perfectly to Jesus, But what Satan is doing here, he's using a scripture that's absolutely true, but he's absolutely using it in a deceptive way. 
a deceptive application. The temptation is this. He's tempting Jesus not just to leap, but to test his sonship. If you are the son of God, leap. If you are the son of God, test your father to see if he'll save you. If you are the son of God, go ahead and test him to see is the Lord among us or what? That's the connection to Meribah. As you're flying through the air, is the Lord among us or what? Is he going to bind me up, catch me up with angels' hands? Satan is tempting Jesus with the thought, is God really among you for you to be experiencing hunger? That's the first temptation. Can he really be your father and can you really be his son if he's going to let you get hungry? I mean, what does Psalm 91 say? <laughs> is the God among you, is your father among you or what if he's going to let you stub your toe on a stone? Are you really his son and is he really your father God doesn't let his children go without, does he? Of course not. See what Psalm 91 says? He doesn't let his children get hurt. You should test him, Jesus, and see if he's really going to protect you. That was the temptation. And Jesus' response, also from Deuteronomy chapter 6, he applied that beautiful interpretation there of the testing of God at the waters of Meribah, and he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, period. Temptation ended. It's a beautiful little picture. All right. So we've done the work. I have three takeaways for you. Here's the first takeaway. And this one, I would just say, uh, I think this one's kind of a lob. All right. Let me get ready for it. Here's the first takeaway. Stop grumbling. I mean, really, stop grumbling. I'm not talking figuratively. I'm talking really, the people of God should not grumble. Okay, that, that's not the direct teaching of the passage. We're going to get to the direct teaching of the passage. But it's a beautiful application of Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 6 and this beautiful application of Christ not grumbling in a situation where he could have said, is God among us or what? Man, I mean this really, not, not figuratively, literally, literally, stop grumbling because God's people should not grumble. It is the absolute opposite of being salty, bright, and aromatic. Okay, I want you to think about this scenario. Let's say you're struggling in your marriage, and you go to your workplace, and you're grumbling about your marriage, and your, your sweet mate there or your cubicle mate or your workmate there in the workspace is overhearing this, and they're thinking, man, that guy's really got a messy marriage. Isn't he a Christian? I guess, did God join them together or what? Is God among them or what? What you're doing and saying out loud as you're testifying or you're declaring this statement, is God among us or what? Man, it's a very different statement than, God, we really are hungry and thirsty in our marriage and we really need your help. There's nothing wrong with crying out to God, God, I need your help in my marriage. But that's a distinct difference between, God, what in the world were you thinking letting me marry this loser? Man, the people of God should not grumble. Grumbling says, God, you didn't know what you were doing when you gave me this husband or wife. Are you among us or what, God? You can grumble about your job. Ironically, you can go to the same workplace and you can grumble about your job as your workmate, your sweetmate, 
and your space, the person sharing that workspace with you, overhears you grumbling about the job that God gave you. And then you want to turn to him and say, hey, man, you should come to church with us. God can be trusted. He's pretty awesome. Really? He gave you a crummy job, apparently. Crummy marriage, too. That's it. You can grumble about your family. You can grumble about your friends. You can grumble about your boss. You can grumble about your health. You can grumble about your looks. You can grumble about your clothes. You can grumble about your car. You can grumble even about your church. It's the opposite of being salty and bright and aromatic, people of God. Man, I, this isn't me telling you to stop grumbling. This is us reminding all of us, let's all stop grumbling because we all do it to some degree. Man, we can grumble effectively about what God has given us and where God has us in place and life. And it's tantamount to testing God and saying, God, are you among us or what? I'll give you a couple of alternatives. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Man, salty and bright and aromatic. If you show up at the workspace and you say, Man, my marriage is really struggling, but I'm trusting the God who brought us together. We're seeking counsel. We're seeking help because it matters. It's supposed to put the the relationship of Christ and the church on display. So that's why we're really going to work at this. It's a distinct difference between, man, why in the world did I marry this loser? Where in the world was God? Was he among us or what? Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Here's another alternative to grumbling. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. (laughs) I needed that reminder. Just a simple reminder, right? Anybody else need that? That's just simple. You need a lob, a simple lob you can leave with. Man, honey, let's work at not grumbling this week. Let's not grumble about all the things that we think are broken that could be better. Let's be thankful in all things. Let's enjoy a good God that has us in a good place, who's providing for us has surrounded us with friends and family and a job that's good, that's providing for us. What a great father we have. Man, we can be salty and bright and aromatic instead of grumbling. Okay, that's the lob. Here's the second thing. Don't believe Satan's lies about sonship. Don't believe Satan's lies, let me clarify this, about the nature of sonship. Okay, we told the story of two sons this morning. Israel as a son of God, and a new and better son named Jesus. I want you to consider yourself as a son of God and daughter of God as well. While Psalm 91, listen, is completely true, it does not reveal the truth completely. Man, you take shelter in the the Most High, God is going to protect you absolutely, but it doesn't mean you're never going to stub your toe. Man, that verse is absolutely true, but it does not reveal the truth completely. God does let his people experience hunger and thirst. Here's a few samples. 
1 Corinthians 4, 9. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are held in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Man, Satan's lying about the nature of sonship. Don't believe his lies. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 3, here's another sample. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Mm, Satan is lying about the nature of sonship. Question is, if you're buying the lie, he's speaking about the other servants of Christ and contrasting them to himself. He says, I have far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Never get on a ship with Paul, ever. At night and a day, I was adrift at sea, see, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Man, Satan mishandled that passage. It's completely true, but it does not reveal the truth completely. In Satan's economy, there would be no martyrs. Not going to let anybody die, much less stub their toe. There'll be no hungry Christians. There'll be no Christians without a job. There'll be no homeless Christians. There'll be no sick Christians. Man, the health, wealth message, people of God, y'all need to hear this, is a movement and a message directly from Satan. It's a lie. It's a twisting of the truth. And you can find yourself believing it mistakenly. And though it might sound tempting, it might even sound delicious. Let me tell you this. If that was what it meant to follow Christ, if that's what sonship meant, where nothing bad ever happened to you from that point on, you would never learn to depend on God. You realize that's, where, that's the soil where dependence is, is, grows. In need and crisis in hunger, it's in those circumstances that we're prone to grumble that we learn to depend on and trust in God. In that very soil, in that very thing that you're thinking, man, I got to stop grumbling about that. Reframe that and go, oh, that's the place where I learned to depend on him? Oh, okay. I then can be thankful in all things because even that thing, that ugly thing, is going to be the thing that he fosters dependence in me. Ah, what a great God. Turning lemons to lemonade. Only God could do that. Oh, man, what a great God. It's in those circumstances that we're prone to grumble, that we learn to depend on and trust God. Philippians 4.12, it's so beautiful. It says this, I know how to be brought low, shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, hungry, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret, Paul says, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance 
and need. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ. That's the secret. You never learn that secret apart from those times where you're in crisis. Man, Satan is a liar, and this is what sonship looks like. I'll give you a last little glimpse of sonship. In Matthew chapter 26, listen to this little passage beginning in verse 36. It'll be familiar. This is what sonship looks like. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. We might insert, just kind of incorporate some of the passages that we've looked at today that, that he might, might have felt kind of hungry. He might have felt kind of thirsty. He might have felt like a profound sense of lack. We know for sure, he says, I feel troubled and I feel sorrowful. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Man, it's a very human desire, a very human appetite. I don't want to go through this hard thing, this difficult, painful thing. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Man, that's what sonship looks like. The third point that I'll share with you is brief. Matthew's point. This is Matthew's point in the passage and one that we cannot miss. It's a point that we considered last week. Matthew's point must be our greatest takeaway this morning. I, don't, I want you to take away, don't grumble. I want you to take away, don't listen to the lies of Satan. But if you missed this simple and beautiful point, Matthew's point, you've missed really the cream of the gospel and the cream of this morning's message that Jesus was faithful where all else failed. That's the kind of Savior that we have. He's faithful where all else failed. In his hunger, he was nourished with every word that comes from the mouth of God. Instead of testing God, he trusted God. Instead of testing him with a leap from a high place and a deceptive application of a psalm, he trusted him with far more than a stone bruise. He trusted him up to and on and through the travail of the cross. Man, let's enjoy him together. He's the new and better son indeed. Let's pray.